On this AirCheck episode, we continue our conversation with Barry Scott, founder and host of the national syndicated radio show, The Lost 45s. This is part three of four. Barry recounts his book, We Had Joy, We Had Fun, the challenges of licensing music for a CD collection he was releasing. We find out how many 45s Barry actually owns his horror stories of queuing up and playing vinyl records, the time he didn't know a record was skipping on the air as he went to the bathroom, and how saying the word erection on the air almost lost him his job. Here we go. Welcome to AirCheck Season 4, a podcast about radio's personality. From radio personalities, managers, consultants, owners, and your most humble hosts, from Philadelphia, Rich DeSisto and Paul Kelly. I'm Rich DeSisto. And I'm Paul Kelly. This is part three of a four-part series with Barry Scott, founder and host of the syndicated radio show, The Lost 45s. In the last episode, Barry revealed the real story around Captain and Tennille's wedding day. They weren't married when Love Will Keep Us Together was number one. They got married after that. He told us how the Lost 45 show is produced with his thousands of audio clips and train wreck segues. I love to shock someone with Run Joey Run, followed by Culture Club. Um, I, I think those sound fun. Plus, how a conversation with Smokey Robinson landed a call from Aretha Franklin and almost Stevie Wonder. Aretha tried to get me Stevie Wonder, which is an impossible interview. But I know she tried because she was looking him up in her phone book. And how an on-air Whitney Houston tribute the day she died almost got him fired. I put a banner behind me, so they got a lot of press. But the head of marketing for this corporation was mad that I didn't go through her. And um, I got a warning for that. Ladies and gents, from the Lost 45s, it's Barry Scott. You went national, Barry. You took the Lost 45 show from a weekly presentation for the Boston local audience and expanded your reach with syndication. Very proud step, to say the least. But you didn't stop there, right? You decided to also write a book. Talk a little bit about that venture. Every once in a while, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I came up with an idea because of the interviews. Um, by then, I think I had 500 um, of doing a book based on the, the interviews. We had joy, we had fun, which comes from Seasons in the Sun, and Terry Jacks is a chapter in the book. We had joy, we had fun is a book about the 70s, the artists and recording artists that were big hits back in the 70s that largely are unheard of on the air today. Artists like the Osmonds, the Partridge family, the stories behind the Bay City Rollers, Bobby Sherman, the Captain and Tennille, Helen Reddy. Um, they're told in detail a little bit about their songs, what the people are up to today. It is very difficult to get a book published um, if you're not self-published, and that wasn't much of a thing back then, now it is, you, you can easily do it. But my proposal went to a company called Faber and Faber. They had done a couple music books. They were based in London, but they had an office in Winchester, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. And people like Pete Townsend were um, editors for Faber and Faber. The woman who received the letter happened to be a huge fan of my show. And she called the next day. She said, yes. And so I was able to write a book. Um, the book did fairly well, did better in England than it did here. Just about the time, and you hear this story from recording artists all the time, just about the time the book got published, they closed their Faber and Faber Winchester office. So they no longer had a Massachusetts presence or American presence. And so that hurt the book in America. But um I got no complaints. It was a fun book and uh, it holds up well today. And then from there, uh, you decided to uh, to put a, a CD together. Uh, now, was that something to highlight the music? Was it specifically for a certain 
uh, group of songs or what was the uh, mindset behind the CD uh, uh, releases? You'll be surprised at the answer. Um, I wanted the songs that I could not find on CD on CD. So for personal use, I could play them. Um, and I had actually been trying for, I think before the book got published, I had been talking with Rhino Records um, and uh, <clears throat> I had gotten a bunch of songs. I, Gilbert O'Sullivan, you know, a lot of the people I spoke to, some of them owned their own masters. Gilbert O'Sullivan was one of them. So I licensed two songs from him. Um, I got two songs from Terry Cashman of Cashman and West. They owned Life Song Records. So Ariel by Dean Friedman and Shannon by Henry Gross were both the ones he licensed to me. And I had about, I don't know, enough for a CD. Uh, I don't know, things started going south. And before you know it, Rhino released Have a Nice Day. And it became a 25-volume CD collection, largely of all songs from my show, including everyone I had licensed. So I thought, well, obviously there's merit in this. Let me keep trying. And I found Varese Saraband Records. The uh, president of the label loved the idea. And then he did the work finding the original masters because the songs that were left, frankly, and the reason why you don't, you get the same songs on compilation CDs over and over. The ones that are left are hard to find the licenses for or the masters for, and most labels don't want to do it. So instead you get shake your booty again, or you get uh, don't leave me this way by Thelma Houston, which is on virtually every disco collection I've ever seen in my life. Um, but he wanted to try and so we did two CDs together, and I think we got a total of about 25 songs. Most of them I did not have on CD at the time, so that made it worthwhile even for me personally. When you say license the song, talk a little bit about that. What's the process, uh, and, and how difficult or easy is it to, uh, to be able to be successful in that process? I stayed away from it largely, that area. Um, the ones that I was able to were just basically – me chatting with the artists themselves and they happen to have them. That doesn't happen a lot. Um, most of the time, the masters have gone on to second, third, fourth, even fifth parties, people buying the publishing. Um, and so you have to track it down. And the people at the record label did that largely. Um, and some of them were just not discoverable. I had, a, I think I had a wish list of 110 songs and we ended up finding 25 of them for that collection. And I don't think any of the ones on the list have really come out on CD since. So I guess it's not an easy process. And a lot of it is still has to do with the origination of the licensing uh, pr uh, properties or permissions or however you you categorize you categorize it from the beginning. You know, we we learn a lot about these uh, older artists today selling the rights to their music um, to different uh, entities. Uh, is that is that is that part of that same uh, path, or is that is that a different uh, a different extension to to the music? That's what. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem. Is is anytime there's a gray area where you're not sure who owns the master or who owns the publishing, no one's going to take the time to find that out to hire a lawyer to figure it out, and so those masters just kind of vanished. It might happen one day. One day someone might take the time to find them. But um, until then, I still play a couple things on vinyl. And um, as Tom Scholes of Boston told me, vinyl still is the, the best sound out of anything. And I tend to agree with him. 
Is there one song that you've been looking for a license that you still haven't been able to to, to find? Is that's a uh, thorn in your side? Oh, that's funny. You should ask. Um, I, I'm trying to think of the list. Um, up until recently, there the original version of "My Sweet Lady," the John Denver song. It was a top twenty hit by Clifty Young, the actor, from a TV movie called Sunshine. The vinyl is even a little scratchy. I had to clean it up, but that just came out. So I, I guess eventually they all will. I think that's such a great plan. You know, there's some songs I love to play on CD, but they're not available yet. I know. I'll get the labels to <laughs> throw this together, find me the audio, press it out, and there we are. What a, what a great plan. You know, recently I took an album out. Um, it was Dan Fogelberg's Netherlands. Uh, there wasn't really any hits on it, but um, uh, the title track I've always loved. And I laid on the bed, holding the album in my hands, putting headphones on. And it immediately, I had like a synaptic flashback to being 13 or 14 years old, doing the same exact thing with the same exact album. And I'm reading the liner notes and I'm seeing that Joe Walsh was a guest on this track. And Don Henley was a guest on this track. And Emmy Lou Harris sang backup vocals. And uh, David Crosby co-wrote this song. And I'm suddenly realizing none of today's youth has that joy of actually holding the album, looking at the tracks, looking at the pictures and seeing who and what played on everything. Um, that's something that's totally missed. And that is exactly what this show is trying to bring back. That era where you actually did stack up songs, you know, at 45s on your, on your phonograph and let them just slip and play and sometimes slip. <laughs> So I have to ask you about your personal collection. I need to know, how many 45s do you or did you own? I still have them. Um, it's hard to put a number on it. Uh, it's over 10,000, and they take up a lot of space. Um, then I got a lot of albums, 12-inch records, and then CDs. However, the entire show now fits on a couple terabyte drives. So it's a lot easier now to take that show anywhere um, because who would have thought back in the day when I used to bring crates of records, milk crates of records to radio stations and how heavy they were that they could all fit in a tiny drive. Now that is an advance. I love. Yeah. I had uh, my early days of um, music, the love of music prior to getting into radio was being a mobile disc jockey where I had crates and crates and crates of records that I would carry with me to weddings, sweet 16s, you know, you name it. Uh, and then what we would call the coffin with the two turntables and the mixer, you know, in this little box yeah. to make it easier to carry. But yeah, the weight and uh, the trouble of trans uh, transport, transporting all that stuff uh, on location, you know, not so much a problem these days, as you mentioned, uh, you know, having the, the terabyte uh, hard drives. But I'm curious, did you along the way digitize some of your vinyl to add to that uh, easier process of uh, moving moving your uh, your music around? Or did you actually find through your licensing journey? Um, you know, digital copies, if you will, of, of these songs. When there were digital copies, I used them. When there were not, I went from vinyl to MP3 and tried to clean them up as best I could. And uh, yeah, the I do remember going, being a mobile DJ. I played 
gigs all the time on the Boston Harbor on big cruise ships. Very windy on the Boston Harbor. And it, there'd be 800, 1,000 people dancing on an upper deck um, to a thumping disco song. And the wind would come and lift the needle up. And you'd have to put it... <laughs> You'd have to put it back down while excusing yourself. So, yeah, when it went to MP3s, it made things a lot easier. So there there are technologies. I don't mean to demean all technology. Um, there are things that certainly have made our life easier. And the quarter uh, on the tone arm helped every once in a while, too, to keep that 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 needle down on the record. <laughs> oh, uh, so when I was at ZLX, I was playing Hard Luck Woman by Kiss. It's still in my head. That's a top 15 record from them. Lost 45, and I had to go to the bathroom. So ZLX was in the John Hancock Tower, and you had to go into the hall and to the bathroom. And in the bathroom, there was no monitor there because we shared the floor with an advertising agency. And when I came back and opened up the door, it was obvious it had been skipping for a while. So um, there were moments like that, sure. Also, but the uh, the art of cueing a record and the slip cue and and uh, cue burning where you would slip it so much that it would create a noise on the record uh, when you first played it, little um, all that, that art, even the art of splicing tape. I was, those interviews in the beginning were all done on tape and you'd have to splice it with a razor blade and tape. And I became really good at that. Um, and then I had to become good at figuring out how to use the audio technology that occurred afterwards, which once again, is a lot easier to explain to uh, the audience what queuing up a record is or was uh, is you would have to uh, turn the record backwards, maybe a half a spin on the turntable. Uh, so it, give, it gives the, the motor of uh, the turntable a little bit extra time to get to proper speed once the, the song was actually touching the needle. So once you hit the button to fire off that song in the introduction, you didn't have it, you know, have that kind of uh, up, up cue, as we called it. So that backspin was very important. And like you were saying, the slip cueing, you would have a piece of felt on top of the turntable platter, and perhaps maybe you would, uh, you know, hold oh. your finger on it. So as the the, the turntable uh, platter, platter was spinning underneath, you would just lift your finger off of uh, uh, the record and it would start immediately. So the couple of little techniques that you learned along the way, as Barry is explaining, as in the early days of, uh, of playing music on the radio or at a party. And that was a true art form. I mean, that was something you had to learn, something you were either good at or you weren't. Um, it took me a while, but I was really pretty good at that. Um, I mean, 45s were my life, so I learned how to do that slip through by just holding the, the thing. But um, I saw some masters do it. I, I was at KISS 108, Dale Dorman, was the midday jock. And I watched him slip cue, talk up a song while answering a phone call, taking a request and putting that song on next. And I thought, well, that's a god. I'm Hank Morris. Now 12 in a row continues with Dale Dorman. I kiss 108. What a cool bunch of guys. These guys were there any other day. This is Joe Public and do you every night. Fresh track. I, I learned from some of the best. I got to go back to the kiss song. What lyric was skipping when you walked in the studio? I wish I remember that part. Uh, I think I was too horrified. Um, and you know, I didn't get in trouble for that. Um, that happened back then. Things did skip. Um, most radio stations, you, when you went to the bathroom, they were playing the station in there. So you would know right away. Um, I got in trouble for something. The only time I've ever really gotten in trouble. Um, <laughs> it occurred later on near the Whitney Houston incident we talked about earlier. 
Um, and that's when corporate radio became more consolidated. There was a time where there were 12 different radio companies in Boston. And if you didn't like where you were, you could go to the next door station and it was owned by another company and you could sit down with them and perhaps get a job, which is why I went from ZLX to BOS to Mix 98.5 to Eagle 93.7 to ROR to Oldies 103 back to ROR because they were largely not consolidated. And then as time went on, it became much more difficult. Um, but I played the song Little Willie by The Sweet. Now, Little Willie was a number three record in 1973. I was nine. I thought it was the cutest song and Sweet hated it. So they ended up doing Ballroom Blitz and Fox on the Run and they became rockers like they wanted to be. But it was a bubblegum song. It was cute and innocent. However, the lyrics are about an erection. That's what Little Willie is in English. Um, and so I told my adult audience in this must have been 1990s. No, this must have been 2009. That that's a song about an erection. And the next day I got in trouble for saying the word erection. Now, <laughs> obviously, it's an adult format with adults listening. We run or had run Viagra ads. And I was basically <laughs> told, unless it's about a blue pill, you can't say the word erection. And I had to apologize for it. So there you go. Little Willie Willie won't go home, but you can't push Willie around. Willie won't go. Would love to hear your back selling a Steely Dan song. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> There are songs. There are songs with that story. I mean, how do I even talk about Terry Jacks? Put the bone in properly. I mean, I can't. I think you can say the word erection on the air without a prescription, right? I'm not touching that one. On our final episode with Barry, part four of four, Barry shares the moment of a radio station's format change. Boston's oldies 103.3 WODS. How the magic of nostalgia plays a huge role in the success of his show, The Lost 45s. His use of television to promote The Lost 45s brand, plus how his role in reuniting the cow cells upset Howard Stern. You can follow us, stream, and download every episode of Air Check on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also tell your smart speaker to play Air Check Podcast. If you haven't done so, give us a great rating. We'd also love to hear from you on our Facebook page, Aircheck Me. This is Rich DeSisto. And I'm Paul Kelly. We'll talk to you soon. Closing out another episode of Aircheck, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. If you have radio stories to share, we'd love to hear from you. Join the Aircheck guest list. Email aircheckme at gmail.com. Musical props are Chris Gordon's. Announcer props, I'll take those. Greg O'Brien, the OB. AirCheck is available now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also tell your smart speaker to play AirCheck Podcast. AirCheck is the creation of RDPK Productions.